Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and once again we just thank you for your grace and for your mercy that you've lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we spend time in your word looking at the the things that are found here, that your spirit would be moving, teaching us, illuminating the text to our eyes so that we may see the marvelous truth of your character and of your will. And may uh, your spirit continue to work on us to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for today. We thank you for everyone who's here. And we just ask that um, you would be honored and glorified by everything that is said, everything that is thought, and everything that is done. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. Uh, I am very thankful for mothers. I'm very thankful for my own mother. Um, not, not only giving me physical life, the Lord, she was the one that birthed me, but she was also the one that explained the gospel to me, uh, when I had questions after I was, I was in Awana memorizing different passages from the book of Romans. And it was my mother who, who took the time to explain some of those concepts to me. Uh, I could tell you exactly where it was. It was in Gillette, Wyoming, outside on American Road heading towards the Bricker Ranch. Um, that was, so I'm very thankful for that. She taught me a lot of truth. She was, in many ways, my first theology professor. Uh, very, very thankful for her. I'm very thankful for the mother of my children, my wife. Um, the Lord gave her to me, also in Wyoming. Um, <laughs> so just amazing, and, and, and I love her dearly and thankful for her. And then even for her mother, my mother-in-law, and when I think about those three women, uh, pretty big part of my life, I, th- there's one thing that I could say about them that is true for all of them. It, it is this. They love truth. That, that is absolutely 100% you could say that about all of them. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, you can tell them something and point to God's word, point to a verse, and all three of them will unanimously accept it right off the bat and go, well, if that's what God's word says, that's the truth. That's it. And they are, they are dedicated to the truth. And I'm very thankful for them. I'm very thankful for their influence and even how they inspire me to be that type of person, to just be that, that committed to the truth that when I see something in God's word, say, that's the truth. That's what it says. There is no other truth. I think it's a very rare thing not here, but in the church general, in the world, there's a lot of places called churches, and there's a lot of people that go to those places. And truth is not uh, a premium where it should be. And to, to say that someone is a lover of truth should be something that should be of all believers, but sadly it is not something that is in the church. And one of the things that I think is really devastating when you are not a lover of truth, as we'll be looking at this this morning. When you're not a lover of truth, it has ramifications, and that ramification even goes into the family. We've been talking in Proverbs 14, 1 through 11, and that's where we'll be this morning. We've been talking about uh, the building blocks for a godly, strong home. And in Proverbs 14, 1 through 11, if you just notice verse 1, it says, A wise woman builds her house. So here this is speaking of, of a wise woman, of a wise mother, right? But it, it isn't, 
it describes everyone who seeks wisdom. Notice that they build their house. And the word here for house is a, is a, is a metaphor of the family, right? So a wise person builds their house. It's, it's talking of their, their family life. And then notice in verse 11, it says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And so in this section, in the first verse and in the last verse, it's kind of bookended with this uh, phrase of the flourishing house, the, the upright house, the wise house. And the question is, well, how does one then build that home and build that tent that's flourishing Well, that explanation is actually found in verses 2 through 10, and it kind of describes what that looks like. The first week, we looked at verse 2, where it talked about the fear of the Lord. The absolute bedrock of every single strong, godly household should be the sense of the fear of the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord, you cannot have a strong, godly house. Without this incredible, awesome respect for the Lord seeing God for who he is, seeing him in his attributes, saying, I must be obedient to him, having this, this, this sense of I want to please him above anyone else, listening to him first, taking him seriously, having this reverence for him and for his word. Without that, there is, you can't have a godly house. That is the, that is the foundation of the bedrock. The next week, then we talked about this idea of um, provision and protection, right? That's what we talked about last week, that a godly house, how do we build it? Well, we, we do it by protection, and we talked about the protection is actually the protection of what we say, right? Wise words protects our family, so we should be speaking wise to each other. And then we talked about provision and this, this idea of of godly provision yes it speaks of physically providing for your family we should be physically providing for one another especially inside of our family that's that's kind of our responsibility inside of the family is to take care of one another Uh, but there's more to it than just physically bringing home a paycheck making sure everybody has a meal everybody has clothes everyone has a bed everyone has a roof over their head there has to be that spiritual provision as well This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7, and we're primarily going to look at one trait, one building block, and that building block is truthfulness. In verse 5, we could say it's personal truthfulness, right? Telling the truth. And then in 6 and 7, it would be speaking of discerning the truth, helping your family discern what is right, discerning what is true. So, let's go ahead and let's look at verse 5. It says, A trustworthy witness will not lie. By the way, that's the definition of a trustworthy witness, right? A trustworthy witness is one that's going to tell the truth. That's what makes them trustworthy. And a false witness, surprise, surprise, utters lies, right? That's the definition, right? Now, this is a, in one sense, these are very legal terms, right? The use of the word witness here is not just talking about lying in any situation. It's actually talking about a court of law when somebody would stand before a court in a case or, or be speaking about some sort of public policy in the city gates. It would say that a, that a trustworthy witness is one that's going to tell the truth, but, but it would be unthinkable for him to say anything other than the truth, right? So he will not lie. So, so he's going to be a truth teller, 
regardless of what that means for him, what that means for his friends, regardless of what that means for his family, he's going to say the truth. He will not lie. That's just not even part of the equation, right? There's just this, there's this sense of it is ethically wrong to lie. Whereas a false witness, they don't care, right? They don't care. <laughs> they're going to say lies. They're going to say whatever they think is going to help them in the moment. And, and they are willing to say whatever, and they're willing to lie. So we obviously understand how this could become really bad in a legal sense, right? If you had an entire society that was willing to lie while in a courtroom, that's bad. But there's, there's this deeper sense of that with inside of a family, there, is, there should be a strong, godly house, should be one that is not willing to tell a lie. Essentially, they should be telling the truth. Now, I don't mean to get very philosophical here, but I think it is kind of important to at least define what we mean by truth, right? And define at least what we mean by a lie so that we're at least on the same page. It's interesting, the Greek word for truth is the Greek word aletheia. Now, I know that this is in the Old Testament and this is in Hebrew, but there's similarities. And aletheia was actually a term that was used on reports where somebody would come by and say, this is what was going on. This is what happened. This is what's going on in the kingdom. So the word literally means the current state of affairs. So to tell the truth is to say it like it is, right? That would be a basic working definition, to say it like it is. To say that your words match reality. That's what telling the truth is. Your words match reality. So a trustworthy witness is going to say what is, what happened. His words are going to be consistent with reality. Now, a lie is the opposite of truth. So if the truth is stating reality, then what would a lie be? Creating an alternate reality, right? So a liar is really creating an alternate reality. So, as believers, we say that it is ethically wrong to lie. And just as us as sinners, every time that I've ever heard a sermon on lying, afterwards in the car, the discussion was, well, when is it okay to lie? Instead of just taking God's word and say, okay, it's wrong to lie, we as sinners always try to look for an excuse of when it's okay to lie. And we come up with all these crazy scenarios in which we can think that where we can lie. And there might be some fruitful discussion that comes from that. However, I, I want to take it a different sense, and I'm just going to say the principle is it is ethically wrong to lie. We'll just say that, okay? That's a good principle, right? It's ethically wrong to lie. The question that I'm going to pose is why is it ethically wrong to lie? Why? Now, I suppose that there's a couple answers I think for us as believers, I think we would initially say, well, God tells us not to lie. That's a good reason, right? God's the standard. He's the objective moral giver. The objective moral giver says, do not lie. Therefore, it is wrong to lie. It's ethically wrong because the moral giver says it's wrong to lie. And there's some validity to that, right? We could even say, well, if we just look at the definition, if lying is creating an alternate reality, alternative reality, what would you say to a person who constantly is trying to convince people of an alternate reality? What would you say of that person? They're either insane, right, or they're trying to manipulate you. 
So what would we think of somebody who's constantly trying to manipulate others? We would say, well, that's pretty selfish. It's pretty self-centered. That's not thinking of other people. And in a family dynamic, think about somebody who's constantly trying to manipulate everybody. Is that good for building a strong family? No. You think about families where there are people who are manipulating one another, and it's constantly dog-eating dog, and there's never any growth, never any deepening of relationships. It's always moving from one fight to another, and there's always these shifting alliances, and you've got to make sure you're in the right alliance at the right time, and if you're in the wrong alliance, well... You're going to get chewed out at Thanksgiving, right? That's, that's a lot of times how things happen. So we could say, just on a practical level, it's manipulation, right? We could even say, what happens if somebody sincerely believes a lie? Like, let's assume somebody was born into a Muslim family. They believe something that's not true, and then they go out and they tell people that on truth. That's lying, right? They're saying, here's reality, when it's actually not reality, They're giving us a bill of goods. They're telling us that here's man, here's God, here's problem with sin, here's here's the solution. And it's not true. It's an alternate reality. What would we say of that? They're not necessarily trying to manipulate us, but they're still lying. And that's still ethically wrong. Does that have any ramifications in a family? Of course. If we're about telling the truth, we're about talking about the way things really are. And if... It, and if the things that we say are not really the way they are, then that's a lie. And that, that always brings bad, that, that's always bad. And, and just imagine if you have a wrong philosophical or theological idea, you bring that into a family, then, and you start influencing the family, what are they going to try to do? They're going to be living in a fairyland in this world that's not real, trying to solve problems that are not really problems with solutions that are not really solutions. That moves them away from the Lord, and that, by definition, is not a solid, godly household. However, I would say, ultimately, why is it unethical to lie? I would say this. As Christians, the way we define things is always by the character of God. I'm not sure of any definition that a believer has that is not defined by the attributes of God. Think about it. What does it mean to be a parent? Who do we look to? God the Father. What does it mean to be a good child? Who do we look to? God the Son. Right? When we, talk, when we think about what is love, who do we look to? God. What he did with Jesus Christ. When we think about holiness, who do we look? Who do we think of? God. The triune Godhead. Every single definition is founded and rooted in the holiness of God. And so truthfulness is also found in the attributes of God. Right? And so as believers, what are we trying to become like? We're trying to become like Christ, and that's what the Holy Spirit's doing, making us more like Christ. We're becoming like God, right? We're, we're imitating God. Therefore, if our definitions come from God, the goal of our redemption is to look like Christ, to be like God, and we are doing something that's opposite of him, then that means it's ethically wrong. To lie is to do something that's opposite of God's nature. Now, let me show you this from God's word. Go with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Just a quick little rabbit trail here. Do you also, when you're going to those, uh, to those epistles, uh, the, the Pauline epistles... You do that little thing, go eat popcorn. Does everybody else do that? 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. My mind just went blank, and all I could think of was go eat popcorn. I said, that doesn't help me find the book of Colossians. There's no such thing as popcorn in Colossians. Anyways, all right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Now, we're coming in on the middle of, of, of an argument, but, but I think there's enough here that we can understand it. He says, do not lie to one another, right? So that's an imperative. Do not lie. Don't, don't go around saying falsehoods. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And then notice this, and have put on the new self, right? So as a believer, I should not lie because lying is a thing that's part of my before Christ person, right? And I've put that aside. Now I've put on this new self. And notice how he describes this new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So notice that as a believer, I'm putting on this new self, this new self that's a product of the Holy Spirit, this new person of who I am in Christ is, is a renewal, right? It's a renewal, it's a, it's, a, it's a recapturing of that lost image of God that was lost in the fall. It's now this redemption, this renewal, and this renewal is based off of a true, intimate knowledge of God, and this is according to what? To the image of the one who created him, namely, it's in the image of Christ. So notice that to lie is the opposite of the image of Christ. So it's ethically wrong because it's not how God is. God is truthful. God loves truth. And as being made in the image of Christ, I should be like him and love truth. God is the ultimate authority for how we think ethically and morally. So a strong Christian family will say, no, lying is out of bounds. You cannot lie because God does not lie. God is truthful. He's a truth teller. Therefore, this family will tell the truth to each other. All of us know that lies on a personal level can destroy so many things. So many things. I I know we have all had family members lie to us. I'm sure we've all lied to family members. And all of those things have come out. And think about the chaos and the problems that were caused because of that. As believers, we should not lie to one another, but by the power of the Spirit, based off of God's Word, because we're saved and we're becoming more like the image of Christ, we should not tell lies to each other. We must be truth-tellers. Okay? This is one building block of a strong biblical family, of a strong godly family, telling truth. Now, there's more when we talk about truth. Notice the next verse. In Proverbs 14, verse 6, there's another facet to this being truthful. There's the engagement between members inside of the family telling the truth to each other and this this idea that we will not tell lies to each other, this resolve to be truthful. But then there's this other aspect, and notice what he says in verse 6. He says, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. Now, remember a scoffer. A scoffer is that one who, when he hears biblical claims, he hears claims about God, he goes, that ain't right. He's kind of making fun of, the, of, of God. He's kind of making fun of biblical truth. He's, he's kind of like a full-grown fool, right? A fool walks away. The scoffer is the one who 
is laughing about it. He, he's kind of the leader of the pack, right? This is kind of like the leader of sinners, right? The scoffer. And notice that it says, a scoffer seeks wisdom. Now, that's interesting, right? Because in the book of Proverbs, you're either obedient and wise and you love the Lord, or you're a scoffer and you despise wisdom and you despise knowledge. But that doesn't stop the scoffer from still trying to seek wisdom, trying to figure out how to live life. This doesn't stop the scoffer from trying to understand the world around him. It doesn't stop him from trying to understand truths. There are numerous scoffers that, go, that spend all of their time reading books, going to places all around the world, listening to false teaching to try to find some sort of half-truth to put together with some other half-truth to try to come to some idea and light of the truth. That's what they're doing. And this person, even though that they are seeking, and this, this seeking might even be genuine, right? They might, they might be a scoffer, but sincerely, but sincerely looking for wisdom, they're not going to find any. And the question is, why are they not going to find any wisdom? And the answer is obvious, because they're not going to the source of wisdom itself. The source of wisdom is God and is Jesus Christ. And the scoffer does not want to walk towards God or Jesus Christ. Therefore, the scoffer, though he might find a half-truth, will never find the truth, will never find wisdom, because he's not going to the source. Do not underestimate this scoffer, by the way. There is probably nothing more intoxicating to the human spirit and tempting than a scoffer who sounds wise and a scoffer who is mostly right. Think about it. There have been a lot of scoffers that were mostly right and a lot of people listened to them and followed them and went after them and said, this, this is a great teacher, there's some great wisdom here, but never pointed them back to Christ. Never pointed them back to God's word. Never pointed them back to the true source of wisdom. They're constantly seeking, constantly looking. They might come up with some conclusions that you and I would agree with, but if it doesn't include Christ and doesn't point you back to the word, it's not wisdom. Now, this is an important point because scoffers come into the family, right? Scoffers can easily influence people inside of the family. And if the goal is to have a strong, solid family built on truth, a scoffer who does not accept the truth can cause major divisions inside of the family. Now, notice the next part of this parallelism. He says, But knowledge is easy to the one who has understanding. For us in the West, when we see this phrase, knowledge, in the United States, coming from a Western civilization point of view, for us, knowledge is often what? Information, right? I know facts. I, I know a certain set of facts. I have, I have a certain set of, of things that I know. It's, it's an intellectual thing. And no doubt, when Solomon says knowledge, there is an aspect of the intellect and of knowing things. However, I don't think that Solomon is really talking about knowing things as much as he's talking about knowing the source of the knowledge of that things. Meaning this, that I think Solomon here, when he uses the word knowledge, and this is, happens a lot in the book of Proverbs, that knowledge is not speaking of knowing things, 
but knowing the source of that knowledge. It's speaking of knowing God himself. So essentially when he says, but knowledge, I would say this would be knowledge of God. All that necessary stuff that's needed to know God. So just a, a brief little sidebar here that then would lead us to the question of what does it mean to know God? Another pretty confused uh, topic in the church today, you could probably ask 20 Christians and get 400 different answers of what does it mean to know God. But we're not concerned with that, right? We're concerned with what the Bible has to say. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me, right? So to know God would mean that one would have to know Jesus. They would have to understand their sinfulness. They would have to understand that their sinfulness is a sin against a holy, righteous God. And that that sin against a holy, righteous God demands judgment. And that person would have to understand that there is nothing that they can do to make amends for their sins. They cannot do enough to make amends with that God. They are completely and utterly estranged from God. But God in his great love sent Jesus Christ to come live a perfect life. Die on the cross for our sins. The God-man died in our place. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And his offer to us is trust me. Abandon all other methods of salvation and trust me. Trust me what I'm saying about myself. Trust me what I'm saying about my work. Trust me. Trust me alone. Nothing else. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust anyone else. Trust me alone. I will take you to God. You can know God through me. I am the right avenue for the knowledge of God. That's how we start. Any other person that claims to know God but doesn't, doesn't go through Christ does not know God. They know a version of what they think is God, but they do not know God. I would say to know God is scriptural. God is the only one who can truly know himself. And God, in his revelation of himself, gives us how he sees himself. He describes himself. He reveals himself because he himself knows himself. And we get that revelation through the word. This book is the best description of God, of his character, and of his will. To know God is to know the scriptures, because this is the best description. To know God requires God helping you understand what he says about himself. Thus, the importance of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit opening up his word. To know God is to know his attributes, to understand his character, to understand his ways. To know God means that you are entering into a relationship with a person and that you want to spend time with this person and you want to talk with this person and you want this person to talk to you. So you go back to the words to see what he says to you. You look at his promises that he's made to you and that relationship is deepened. You look at the things that he says and you you trust him more and more. You grow in your knowledge. Right? This, in fact, this is the insinuation that Peter gives. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. This knowledge of God is, yes, I know him the moment I place my faith in Christ. Right, I know him. I've entered into a relationship with him. But we continue to know him, and, that, and as we continue to know him, that knowledge deepens. So 2 Peter 3.18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting, by the way, in verse 17, if you look at it, he says, 
you, therefore, beloved, knowing that beforehand, be on guard. Isn't that interesting that in Proverbs, it's talking about uh, discernment, and it's talking about being on, on, on guard, discerning truth, and you'll, you'll be able to discern truth with knowledge. And here Peter's making that same connection. Be on guard because there are things that, that come into your mind, false teachings, and, and they're not wrong because they're false. They're wrong because they put in a wedge between you and your Savior. It affects your relationship. It affects the way that you respond. That's, that's the problem with false doctrine. We don't like just arguing doctrine for the sake of saying we're the intellectual giants of our nation. We, the reason that sound doctrine is important is because from truth, you understand the character and nature of God and his will. And it's from sound doctrine that you are then able then to relate to him. And with sound doctrine, you have that close relationship. With a false theology or false doctrine, it leads you away from him because it's an alternate reality. It's not the truth. It, it, it leads you to something that's not true, that's not there. And you start dealing with problems that aren't problems, with solutions that aren't solutions, in goals that God has never intended for us. That, that's, that's why sound doctrine is so important, not just so that we have the right words on paper, it's because it leads us to God and it helps us with our relationship and to continue to know him and deepen in our relationship with him. So he says, be on guard. But then notice what he says. He says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, what does it mean to grow in grace? It's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? You get the sense of here we are, we're growing. And the, the, the seedbed in which we're growing in our walk is grace of Christ, and the seedbed in which we're growing is the knowledge of Christ, right? So it's not that I'm getting more grace. That's not the concept here. The concept is that, I'm, that by God's grace, by the grace of Jesus Christ, and by my knowledge of him, based off of that, that's the, that's the, the seed, that's the soil that causes me to grow, right? And as I'm growing, what, what's end up happening? My roots are going down into that soil. So it's deepening. So this is really a call for me to fully understand God's grace and to fully understand Christ and to know Christ and to know him more. I'm not getting more grace. I'm just understanding the grace that's already been provided. I'm not getting more grace. I'm understanding that grace that was already given and how I live based off of that grace. I know Christ, but I'm continuing to know him. That's the insinuation. So when we look back at Proverbs 14, verse 6, and it says, but knowledge, this would be the knowledge of God, is easy. It's kind of an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? It's easy to the one who has understanding. Now, this word for understanding, we could easily translate as discernment. So think of this. It is easy to know God if you have discernment. The scoffer does not have discernment, but he seeks for wisdom, and he's not going to find it. Right? He's seeking, but not going to find. But the one who has discernment will find God. Why? Because he already has this standard inside of him, the standard of right and wrong, and the standard is God himself. The authority is God. The authority is his word. So if the authority is God... And the way that I make my judgments is based off of God, right? His character, his person, his will. To know him means that I'm going to go right back to the source. 
And I'm going to look at the source. I'm going to sharpen myself by the source. Right? I'm going to hone my judgment because I know God. And he's the one who's the source. The scoffer does not have access to that source, nor does he want access to that source. He's looking other places. The one who has discernment says, no, God is the standard of right and wrong. To know right and wrong is to know him and to continue to know him. And as you continue to know him and grow in that grace and knowledge, your discernment and judgment is honed because you're getting it right from the source. Now, verse 7, leave the presence of fools or you will not discern the words of knowledge. Now think of this. For us, we go to God as the source. He's the source of righteousness, of, of, of what we think is right and wrong. He's the, he's, the, the, he's the key of how we make judgments, how we define things. But it's possible for you and I to go to a fool, spend time in the presence of that fool, listen to that fool, and go, this guy says a lot of good things, and start thinking about that fool. Start thinking about the words of that fool. And what ends up happening as I continue to listen to that fool, who's not leading me back to the Lord, not leading me back to his word, where's he leading me? He's leading me away. And so the more that I'm away from the Lord, the duller my senses become. The duller my, the, they become dull, right? My spiritual senses become dull. To the point that I could be so confused and my mind be so mixed up that I can't even discern the right way back to the Lord. That happens a lot. And, and, and the question is why? Because God ceases to be the authority. The word ceases to be the authority. All of a sudden, now this fool, he's influencing you. And so now there's this corrupted data, right? As we're making decisions, there's a corrupted data. There's what God says, and then there's what this joker says. And then we put them together. And then as we make a decision, guess what? They're fighting against each other. And you can't make a solid decision when you have these two things fighting against each other. And so then the logical conclusion is, guess what? You won't be able to discern the way back to the Lord. You'll be so confused, now, I'm thinking about this in a family dynamic. We all have family members, and maybe we might be the family member, who lacks discernment, who doesn't go directly to the source. And then when we have to make a judgment call, that judgment is a little off. That happens a lot, doesn't it? I mean, we do that. We're sinners. That happens all the time. And the goal for a lot of us is, okay, i got to readjust, right? i got to go back to the source, and, and that's a good exercise. But what happens when you have a family member who brings in the teaching of a fool? That adds a lot of tension in the family, doesn't it? There's a lot of tension because now you have all these competing ideas of what is true, what is right, what's the right way to go in the family. I would say that this happens more than we would like to admit. But for us who are here, trying to be honoring to the Lord, we need to be a lot like Joshua and say, y'all can do whatever you're wanting to do, but as for me and the ones that are under my sphere of influence, we're going to serve the Lord. The Lord is the authority. 
not going to be easy, right? As we talked about before, the one who was the most wise, the one who didn't seek counsel of fools, the one who spoke perfectly and was perfect in every single judgment call was still crucified. His family wanted him dead, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is the principle. The principle is a strong, healthy household is one that is built on truth and where the family is discerning truth. We're telling the truth to each other. We're discerning what is right and we're distancing ourselves from what is wrong. We're seeing what is true, distancing ourselves from what is false. The way that we sharpen ourselves and we hone this is spending time with the Lord, knowing the Lord, continuing to know Him. Yesterday we were, we were talking about something pretty similar to this subject in our study of the book of Ezekiel. And one of the passages that we talked about was this passage in Revelation chapter 2. Go, go with me to Revelation chapter 2. Notice in verse, we'll start in verse 1. It says, to the angel, I think this is the pastor, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. By the way, the seven golden lampstands are the the churches. The seven churches that he's writing to. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. By the way, if you saw that as a description of a church, how many of us would go, sounds like a good church, right? I mean, that sounds like, that, that is a stellar resume, isn't it? You think about all of those things. They had good, the Lord knows their deeds. He knows their toil. They're they're a church that perseveres. They're a church that has discernment. They're able to see the false men. They're able to see all all this false teaching. They, They persevered. They endured for the glory of God, and they didn't grow weary. You would say, yeah, no, that that sounds like a really good church. Sounds like a really good church, and it is a really good church. Those are really good things. The, the Lord isn't rebuking them because they did these things. This, this is what they've done. But, but notice what happens in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. M- meaning, they left the most predominant love. They, they've walked away from Jesus, who should be the number one love. And as I think about this issue with wisdom and truthfulness and knowing God, God should be the number one love. And our love for truth should flow from that relationship that we have with God. That, that's, that's it. The triune God. He, that, that God is the most important relationship above any other relationship. That's number one. Everything else should be a distant number two. My relationship with Jesus is number one. And it's possible here to do a lot of good things. And, and maybe even have like this half love, right? Where we still love Jesus, but he's not number one. And we still do stuff that's good. We still do stuff that's for his glory. We still have the discernment, right? We say, yeah, we're for sound doctrine. We're not for these false teachers. We still love him, but he's not number one. 
And it's possible for us to be around people that where he's not number one. It's possible for us to lose our first love. And with this loss of first love, I think there then becomes this loss of the love for truth and seeking truth in our life. So the question is, what would we do then to, to recapture this? Maybe you're listening to this and you go, yeah, I, truth has not been a major part of my family. We have not made it the key, one of the keystone building blocks of our family, truth. Telling the truth to one another, being like God, discerning truth, discerning truth from error. This has not been the bedrock. So what do you do? What do you do when you've fallen? Jesus' response in verse 5 is, Therefore remember from when you've fallen. Meaning, remember when you used to do things when Jesus was your number one relationship. Right? Remember, remember that. Remember when you had discernment out of love for Jesus. Remember when you told the truth out of love for Jesus. Remember that. Then repent. Admit that you're wrong. See that you're doing something opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. Ask for forgiveness. And then make steps to not do it again. Right? That's what the idea of repentance. And then what does he say? And do the deeds you did at first. He's not telling them to stop the deeds from before. The only difference is that he's saying, do this out of your love, supreme love for Jesus. So when we're talking about truth and having truth as a bedrock, that relationship that we have with the Lord has to be essential. I have to love him. And when I love him and I want to be like him, there's going to be a lot of things that I'm going to then... It's going to influence the way I talk, the way I think, the way I do things, the way that I influence and and encourage my family. And when speaking of truthfulness, this relationship with Jesus will help you become more truthful. You will tell the truth. This relationship, wanting to honor Jesus, will help you become more discerning, but you'll be discerning for the right reason, because you love Jesus and you want to know Jesus more. That is the third building block of a strong biblical family. Next week, we will deal with the, with the last one. But I just want to say this before we close. Just once again, just want to say to all the mothers, happy Mother's Day. Um, we don't know where we'd be without our mothers. Literally, I don't know where I'd be. Um, and I am very thankful for a lot of you uh, in, in talking to you and seeing you and interacting with you, I know that there's many good mothers here who love the truth as well and seek to have their families love the Lord Jesus Christ supremely and have tried to teach and instill in your children discernment and telling the truth and these aspects of truth. And I'm very thankful for you and very thankful for your example and know this, that even your example is an example even to me on what that looks like inside of a family, and how we should operate in a family. So thank you so very much. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll ask the musicians to come up and uh, close in, in the last song. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would make him our number one relationship, make you our number one relationship. Um, we're so very sorry that we've let our, our, our love grow cold, that we haven't been as, as faithful as we should have been. And so we ask that by your spirit and by the influence of your word and, and as, we, as the encouragement of other brothers and sisters, 
that we would constantly go back to you as the source of truth and of discernment, and that this would become something that is axiomatic in our mind, and, and that we cannot think of that every time we make a decision, we make a decision considering you, considering your ways and your will. We also just thank you once again for all of the godly mothers, not only physical mothers, but also spiritual mothers. And we just thank you for them, for bringing them into our lives. And we just ask that uh, today would be a good day with them and a good day in our deepening of relationships with our mothers. We thank you and love you. In your son's name, amen.